Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Jeremy Cliff, International Editor in Berlin. I'm Emily Tampkin, Senior Editor U.S. in Washington, D.C., I'm Ido Vok, Europe Correspondent in Berlin. It's Thursday, the 27th of January. You're listening to World Review from the New Statesman, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Thursday, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. And every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. This week, we discuss Jeremy's trip to Kiev, and how he found the mood on the ground as Russian forces continue to amass on the Ukrainian border. Our actions over the past week have sharpened the choice facing Russia now. We've laid out a diplomatic path. We've lined up steep consequences should Russia choose further aggression. It remains up to Russia to decide how to respond. We're ready either way. We'll talk about why I found Ukrainians surprisingly sanguine about the apparent threat of invasion. Then, a listener question on the role of energy politics in the crisis. Thank you for joining us. Let's begin. All right, before we actually begin, we want to remind you about our special offer for podcast listeners. Go to newstatesman.com slash podcast offer and subscribe to the New Statesman in digital, print or both for as little as one pound a week for the first 12 weeks in the UK. That's just one euro a week in Europe and just $2 a week in the rest of the world. Just head to newstatesman.com slash podcast offer. With that, Jeremy, you were in Kiev in Ukraine. What were your, your main impressions from your trip? I think the most striking thing, given the backdrop and having followed the ongoing uh, concerns about what the 127,000 Russian troops massed around Ukraine's borders are meant to do is just how um, much ordinary life is continuing in uh, the Ukrainian capital. People are not panic buying. There are no queues at the banks. People are going about their everyday lives. And in some ways, that shouldn't surprise us because Ukraine has been at war for eight years, you know, it was it was in 2014 that Russia occupied parts of the Donbass and annexed Crimea, and so I think Ukrainians have got used to war as a sort of background brooding presence. But I think this calm is also reflected in Ukrainians' leadership and in its sort of media and civil society class. And I think talking to officials, journalists, civil society figures, politicians, I was struck at how unconvinced they were that Russia was planning anything imminent or enormous 
in terms of military action. Um, they do think that there is a risk that Russia will send in troops. There is a risk even of a full-scale invasion. But I think they, they don't consider that risk as great as some of the international coverage and some international governments um, would lead us to believe. There was some discussion this past week as to whether or not um, there was different maybe international versus internal messaging in Ukraine. Because on the one hand, you had Ukrainian officials um, openly upset that, for example, American diplomats were reportedly leaving Kiev. But on the other hand, you have more lethal aid being sent to Ukraine and, and, and support requested for Ukraine from the wider, quote unquote, Western world. Mm. Do you think it's a matter of, of Ukrainian authorities positioning themselves differently for the world versus for Ukrainians? Um, or is it just that, you know, when you're out of it, you read the headlines and you see, oh, my goodness, another however many thousand troops and and you, you know, and Putin said this and, and Biden said this and uh, Zelensky said this. And so it's just different when you're actually there. I think it's a bit of both. Um, the announcement that the US was withdrawing some non-essential staff and diplomatic families, along with the UK, uh, came while I was in Kiev. And the people I spoke to were uniformly um, dismissive of that move, and in some cases, actively irritated by it. I think they felt that it was excessive, it was premature, and that it risked creating panic among the Ukrainian population, and indeed among investors. There's a great concern that you'll have an outflow of capital from the country that could actually cause a financial crisis, you know, part, part the talk about a military crisis. And I think that is partly because Ukraine's leaders don't want to panic people. President Zelensky last week, shortly before I arrived, had give, given an address in which he said, we don't need to panic. There's no imminent prospect of a war. Continue with your daily lives. The last thing the Ukrainian government needs with this military threat is people rushing to the banks or the shops or fleeing to the countryside or whatever. I also think it reflects the views of Ukraine's leadership. You know, Talk to people both on and off the record, as, as I did, and they say, look, Putin is trying to stir things up. He's trying to put pressure on Ukraine, and he's trying to pressure the US, NATO, the EU to make concessions, and in turn to put pressure on Ukraine to, to agree to those concessions. He wants to be in the spotlight. He wants to be respected. He wants to negotiate eye to eye with the US. It's a lot about prestige. And so, some even think that the US might be kind of you know exaggerating the threat in order to get Ukraine to the table to make certain concessions and, and frankly get the issue out of the way. You know, they recognize that Joe Biden wants to focus on the contest with China. And they think that talking all of this up is a way to push Ukraine to make concessions, particularly about the autonomy granted to the um, occupied parts of Donbass, for example, um, or the prospects of Ukraine's joining NATO anytime in the near to medium term. Um, and so I think there is a sincerity about this, this calmness and about this doubt about whether Russia would unleash a full-scale invasion. I mean, pretty much everyone I spoke to said that Putin would have to be completely crazy to attempt that, um, not least because the Ukrainian population is ready to resist that and any, any sort of full invasion of the country would, would end up mired in urban warfare. There would be resistance, there would be part partisan reprisals. So there is just a view that he's not that crazy and that he, he's getting a lot of what he wants already. So what do people in Ukraine think Putin is up to? What If he's not going to go for a full-scale invasion and uh, in their view, the preparations that we're seeing at the moment are not for a full-scale invasion, which incidentally is kind of where I've been for a while. I mm. agree with you and I, I think I agree with the kind of the analysts who in general seem to know what they're talking about, who say that if it's possible to at all predict what is going to happen, it's probably more likely to be a kind of lightning offensive intended mm. to destabilize Ukraine and to degrade its military and to kind of 
teach them a lesson than it is to be a sustained occupation, which, as you say, would be very costly and probably inside Russia close to a potentially regime-ending event yeah. in terms of the internal destabilization it would cause within Russia. Um, what do the Ukrainians think the Russians are up to then? First of all, they don't think that um, action is imminent in the way that some of the international coverage would make you think. And that's partly based on assessments of the Russian troop readiness, the fact that the forces massed on the country's borders do not look ready to to move in in a big way. This is not to say that Ukrainian leaders and politicians and so forth don't think Russia will act militarily. But as you say, the scenarios they tend to talk about are generally more surgical or more limited. So possibly some sort of action in Donbass in order to consolidate effective Russian control, especially around Luhansk, Donetsk, possibly Kharkiv. Uh, possibly, as you say, a very fast um, raid into wider Ukrainian territory, possibly modelled on the 2008 war with Georgia, with a, a maximalist scenario that one or two people put to me was a blockade of Kiev, but one that would be intended to be quick and to topple the Ukrainian government rather than any long-term occupation. And then, of course, there's the prospect of military intervention that doesn't involve, quote-unquote, boots on the ground. So um, airstrikes on strategic targets and perhaps um, cyber warfare. And we've already seen cyber attacks on the Ukrainian state in the last weeks, almost certainly deriving from, from Russia. And so the view is that, first of all, we shouldn't necessarily expect anything in the immediate future. And secondly, if it does come, it, may, it will be probably more limited than, than, than the sort of full-scale invasion that some people have been talking about. Obviously, you were, you were just in Ukraine, but now you're back in Germany. And I think one of the interesting kind of subplots of this has been that on the one side, you have the Americans and the British who are kind of quite stridently warning that an invasion is imminent and they think it could come at any time. The way they see that the troop buildups is really kind of preparations for military action that is imminent and, you know, could could happen whenever and possibly with, with very little notice. And then on the other hand, you have the French and Germans who are looking at the same troop movements who are, they're not relaxed about it, but they they say that Russia hasn't got all the elements in place if it really was preparing to for a full-scale invasion. It hasn't got all the elements in place. And they, they talk about things like um, fuel supplies, which apparently they don't see as being in place, which are obviously fairly essential were mm -hmm. Russia to move in. And um, as you've repeatedly hinted, the Ukrainians are kind of more on the latter camp in that, at least in their public pronouncements, they don't think an invasion is coming tomorrow. Now, irrespective of, uh, of who might be right and who might be wrong, what do you kind of attribute this this difference in views to? And, and obviously, it also creates differences in um, in terms of the policies that are advocated because the. British and the Americans are at the moment the ones who are the most hawkish, who are giving the most assistance to Ukraine, because apparently it seems to be that they think that they are the ones who think an invasion is most likely. And the French and the Germans are a little bit more reticent, the Germans especially, and they've, they've had a lot mm. of coverage recently, because they think uh, an invasion is probably less imminent. So, so what do you put that down to? Yeah, one of the striking things about the, um, the sort of the views I heard from, from people in Kiev was that there is a lot of gratitude towards the likes of the UK, the US, the Baltics, the uh, Czech Republic for the military support that's been provided. Just because the Ukrainian establishment is somewhat more sanguine about the threat from Russia does not mean that they're not extremely grateful. In fact, they would like to see more arms. They would like more in terms of anti-aircraft 
arms. They want more in terms of training, in terms of anti-tank weapons. Um, so they are they welcome that very much. And um, Germany's reticence in particular has been noticed and um, has has angered many. Um, some of the responses I got when I asked about Germany's stance in this all were were not fit to go into into my article because they were unprintable. Uh, and I think, by the way, particularly, uh, not just Germany refusing to export arms directly, but Germany intervening to block other NATO members from exporting arms, specifically the Baltics. That in particular makes people people cross. And yet, despite that, I think the those that I spoke to, and I think I spoke to a reasonable cross-section of opinion in the Ukrainian establishment, were probably closer to the French and German view, as you say, on the, the chances of imminent warfare. And I think there are various possible ex- explanations. I'm not in a position to say which is, is absolutely correct. I do think perhaps the reality of dealing with the war day to day, as I've said over the past years, has kind of... Um, it feels like less of a sudden thing to, to Ukrainians who've had to come to terms with it. I think they, as, as you say, have believed that the way Russia's set up around Ukraine's borders is not, you know, does not put it in a position to move immediately. And as you say, defense analysts do seem to agree with that. Um, there, there, there is a theory doing the rounds, and it is just a theory um, that the US might have, and this, this was put to me a couple of times, perhaps the US has intelligence that it's not fully sharing, at least not publicly, um, or indeed potentially not even with the Ukrainian government, that, that makes it think that something is more imminent than what we what the facts would seem to say. That's just pure speculation. A couple of people said, well, perhaps they just know something that they're not telling us. Well, there was one piece of speculation that was made public from the UK side, um, which was the, the UK came out and said, we have reason to believe that Russia may be trying to install a pro-Kremlin leader of Ukraine. Since that news broke while you were there, I'm curious as to whether whether there were any thoughts on that. Yes, while I was there, the um, UK declassified intelligence that Russia um, was contemplating a plan that would see it topple the Ukrainian government and impose a pro-Kremlin replacement. And the name uh, Yevhen Marayev was mentioned. He is a pro-Russian Ukrainian politician. And this caused quite a furore internationally, the idea that Russia might might attempt to do that. It's not entirely non-credible. It's it's well known that Putin would like to have a sort of Lukashenko-style patsy in in Kiev um, who um, would turn the country back from its progress towards the West and its kind of pivot towards the West over the last decade. But the idea that someone like Mariah might might sort of be slotted into, into place in Kiev was treated with um, nothing short of ridicule, to be honest. It was, it was repeatedly noted that Ukrainian population has turned quite drastically against Russia in the last years because of the events of 2014, because of the occupation, um, because of the bullying. And so the idea that it would sort of simply tolerate some uh, Kremlin puppet being imposed was 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 seen as non credible, and the idea of Mariah specifically, who was as I said the individual cited in this intelligence, might be in a position to run the country with any sort of um, settled consent behind him was seen as ridiculous as well. I mean, this man is um, I think he's on about six percent in the polls of who people want as the the country's next president. He has himself denied it, although I suppose he would, but that was that was not seen as as a credible scenario, I have to say. But Emily, just sitting in Washington, I mean, um, the US administration has been very willing to push the idea that Putin could act any time. And I suppose that is understandable. They they do want to work on the basis of the worst case scenario. Um, Biden has said he thinks Putin would move in. His spokeswoman has said that um, the action could come at any point. How settled a consensus do you think that is 
within the US political establishment. Is it, is it widely accepted that um, Putin will go for a fairly maximalist course here or, or, or are the views that it, that it could take longer or take a different form? I was kind of surprised that Biden said that publicly. Um, perhaps I should not have been surprised given that it's Biden, but just because it, it, it leaves, it seems to leave the Russian side so little room to quietly pull back from this. Although maybe that's, maybe there's little room already. Um, you know, it's interesting. So much has stayed in the United States since Trump of Trumpism. But I, I think at least in Washington, I think this is probably different in, in the country more broadly, but in Washington, there still is this bipartisan consensus that that Russia is a threat, that the United States needs to sort of expect the worst from Russia and act accordingly. Now, that doesn't mean that Republicans are supportive of Biden on this. Um, and in fact, I think many figures on the Hill, Ted Cruz comes to mind, have been openly critical of Biden for his, for his handling of this crisis. But I think while in the wider United States, there may be some question as to, well, wait a minute, why are you, particularly on the on the, the Tucker Carlson right and the progressive left, questions to, you know, why are we spending money on, on Ukraine? You know, we don't have health care. Or the Tucker version is like, why is Russia bad, but Ukraine is good, um, which is a framing that we could <laughs> do not have time for on this podcast. But since your question was specific to Washington, the short answer is yes. I think the, the view in Washington is that Putin and Russia are a threat. We, the United States, need to uh, act accordingly. Yes. One thing I'd add to this in terms of how other, other states are responding to the situation is that, and I think that we don't talk about very much, but was really emphasized in the conversations I had in Kiev, was that Ukraine doesn't just need military um, support and arms to deter Russia, although it does need that. But it also needs other forms of support. So um, financial support is one of them. There's a real concern that Ukraine could have a, a, a crisis of government borrowing. Um, so it's looking for international partners to underwrite its bonds. Uh, and, and the other thing is is the, the to prepare the possibility of humanitarian support. As I said, um, the, the idea that Putin would, would undertake a full-scale invasion is considered very unlikely. But some sort of military action does certainly seem to be on the radar as a serious possibility. And the question is, how would the West react if, say, even in the event of a kind of a short and, and rapid um, raid into Ukrainian territory, you have people fleeing major Ukrainian cities, possibly to the border with Poland, possibly to parts of the West of the country that are less likely to be affected. So I think in terms of all of these discussions taking place in, in capitals like Washington and London and Berlin and Paris, it's a message that I would take back from Ukraine itself was, yes, arms matter, but also other forms of support matter too. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman in digital, in print, or both from as little as £1 a week. That's 12 weeks for just £12. That's one euro a week in Europe and just $2 a week in America. Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. 
For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. And with that, it's time to move to a section that we like to call You Ask Us. You Ask Us. Oh, (laughs) Jeremy, we did a great job. Um, This question comes to us from Fahim via email. Do you think Germany's phase out of nuclear energy in the 2010s was a mistake for them in terms of their foreign policy when it comes to Russia, as they are now more reliant on energy sources such as natural gas from Russia? Um, Ido, you recently wrote a piece on this, so why don't you you take the first first step? Sure. So over the past roughly decade, um, many European countries have started phasing out coal because coal is a very polluting fuel. It's the most polluting uh, fossil fuel. Um, And so many European countries, not all of them, but uh, many of them, including Germany, have started phasing out its use as they try to decarbonize their energy production and energy supply. At the same time, um, Germany has also been phasing out its nuclear program, particularly after the 2011 Fukushima disaster, when Angela Merkel took the decision to eventually decommission all of Germany's nuclear power plants. I think half of them went offline at the beginning of this year. So it's very recent. And so the the share of energy produced by nuclear power in Germany has been decreasing. And so there is a shortfall to be made up for because the use of coal and nuclear has been decreasing um, in Germany, but not only in Germany. You can find similar trends in many other European countries. Um, and part of the shortfall has been made up by renewables, so things like wind and solar, but not all of it has. And so many countries have continued to rely on natural gas, which has not been phased out to the same extent and in some cases has Uh, the use of which has increased because natural gas is what many energy experts call a bridge fuel because it's one of the cleaner fossil fuels. And so you can kind of use it as you're transitioning from very dirty fossil fuels, which is coal, to zero carbon, which is renewables. And so, for example, in Germany, the amount of energy generated by natural gas increased by about 10% between 2010 and 2020, even as the amount of energy generated by nuclear and coal went down significantly. So, all that to say that basically um, many European countries have continued to rely on natural gas, including but not only Germany, over the past decade or so. And 
they get very much of their gas from Russia. Um, so imports of Russian gas have increased over the past decade, and they they increased quite a lot, in fact, um, since 2014 when Russia annexed Crimea and invaded Ukraine for the first and we hope last last time. So they, they were at about 115 uh, billion cubic meters in 2014, and they increased to 180 billion cubic meters in 2019 for the EU27. So we're now seeing the costs of this policy, which means that Europe is reliant on energy supplies from a geopolitical rival, and it gives Europe a really quite significant sort of Achilles heel in terms of how it wants to respond to Russia. And because if Russia were to turn off the taps, there's already a global supply crunch. There are already record prices. Households are are facing increased prices, uh, including for gas, but not only for gas, the general cost of living squeeze. And so it's a certainty that this is part of the Kremlin's calculation because it thinks that Europe will be less able to take sanctions against Russia in response to a military incursion. And so we've we've had reports this week that the US is talking to, for example, Gulf countries to attempt to make up the shortfall if Russia were to turn off the taps. But that's that's a really kind of it's a really big uh, big ask. I'm not I'm not in a position to say whether it's impossible or, or not, but it it would be you know billions and billions of uh, of cubic meters of gas which would have to be produced and then shipped to the EU at very, very short notice if we want to avoid the, you know, the, the lights going out in the EU. So it so it really is a kind of a very big uh, vulnerability for, for Europe. I would just quickly note two things. Um, the first is that over the past however many years that Nord Stream 2 has been debated between the United States and, and specifically Germany, the American argument has been you cannot disentangle geopolitics from energy and economics. And Germany had insisted these are separate, right? This has nothing to do with geopolitics. This is a pipeline. And I think that we are seeing now that there were perhaps some flaws with that line of thinking. The other thing that I would just very quickly note is that there have been some who have said, well, the US can just provide LNG or liquefied natural gas to Europe, and that will make up the shortfall. And you know that's that could make up some of the shortfall. But the reality is that, as most experts have pointed out, um, there just isn't enough, right? It's it's not. It's, there just isn't enough LNG that we can get to Europe to make up the difference. Yeah, I don't have much to add to that. Uh, I think it's very clear that um, the Merkel government's de facto choice of um, gas over nuclear as its transitional power source uh, on the road to decarbonisation will will probably be regarded as its biggest historical mistake. Um, and you know that the the, the the old chestnut in German politics that the gas supplies are not political, they're just economic has been has been disproven yet again in the past days. You know, we saw yesterday as we record this, uh, the Russian government said, if you try and cut us off from the swift international payment system, which is being discussed as a possible um, response to a Russian attack on Ukraine, then we'll turn off the gas. So the idea that this is not political has just been proven to be such utter nonsense, and it just goes to show the folly of of, of policies like the Nord Stream two gas pipeline. Um, but I'd like to just quickly, before we we end, just add a final thought because um, going back to our main discussion, because although although I was very struck by how calm Ukrainians are about things, how pragmatic they are, I wouldn't want listeners to go away thinking that that this is not an extraordinary situation and a very dangerous situation. I think I think Ukrainians are being admirably measured in response to it. They're not succumbing to panic, which would be the worst thing. But 
I mean, one of the things that will stay with me from 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 that trip is is just the fact that people are having to prepare for the worst case scenario, even if they don't think that's particularly likely. You know, they, the 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 city council last year published a map of Cold War era bomb shelters. Um, people are uh, making plans for you know packing a bag, as they call it, a go bag, with things like batteries and documents and money in case they need to flee the city. One person I spoke to who didn't think a, a full invasion was very likely at all said that he nonetheless. Um, looked at maps of the city to see how he could how he could get out through the back streets if the roads were were, were jammed up in some sort of panic moment, and you know th- I spoke to a couple of parents who said that they'd been you know they'd had to talk to their children about what to do if suddenly you know if the electricity all goes off or if there are explosions what to do, and so even if I think it would be a mistake to get carried away with some of the the kind of the the, the, the most nightmarish scenarios. It is still absolutely wild to be in a, a major European city and seeing those sort of conversations and those sorts of preparations taking place. So I think that you know if if, if there's one thing I take away from that trip, it's yes, we, we the West need to be measured and not to um, rush to assumptions about what's going to happen. But this is a, a you know we are facing the possibility of a very serious. Um, Attack on the very na- the very concept of national self determination, national sovereignty, and peace in Europe, and that that is that is quite remarkable. So I'd leave us with that thought as a qualification to to what I found about Ukrainians being calmer than we might expect. And on that sobering note, thanks to everyone who sent in your questions. You can send yours in to podcasts at newstatesman.co.uk or by tweeting at us. That's all the time we have for today. Join us next Monday for an interview with Congressman Ro Khanna on Biden's domestic agenda, divisions within the Democratic Party, and Representative Khanna's new book. If you've enjoyed this episode of World Review, please like, subscribe, rate us, leave a review, and tell your friends. Our producer has been Mae Robson. Thank you for listening, and until next time. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.